Welcome to another edition of Jews on Film. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor and documentary filmmaker and still a Jew. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Harry Ottensasser. Hey, Harry. Hey, Daniel. As always, I am uh, Harry Ottensasser. As you said, I am a former film major, a current Jew, and never have been called a serious man. But I could be. Could be, depending on uh, who you ask. Well, we'll see by the time this episode is finished, if you are the serious man that you purport to be. Uh, today, we'll be discussing the 2009 film, A Serious Man, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. I believe they share directing credits, writing and directing credits by the Cohen brothers, uh, folks who are known f- for such films as Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, The Big Lebowski, A Serious Man, Barton Fink, Inside Lewin Davis, Burn After Reading, the list goes on and on. But boy, this was a great film to pick for this podcast. I had not seen it in a while. When was the last time you saw it? I had seen it a couple of years ago. The last time I watched it was probably about 10 minutes ago when I finished it up ahead of us uh, recording. So it's going to be fresh in my mind, hopefully. Hopefully that, that means we don't make so many mistakes going through the plot, but I'm sure our listeners will call us out if we do. Sure. But um, uh, I had seen it a couple of years ago and I just remembered watching it and thinking like, this might be the most Jewish movie I've ever seen. And I obviously wasn't watching in the context of this podcast that was right. you know years away from existing, but... I remember thinking, and we'll get into this, but just some of the language, the deep cuts, and then just the way that I would argue the Jewishness really thematically prevails. And obviously, this is all what we're going to cover in the next hour or so of the podcast. But just I I felt that even then, I think watching that from a completely, I wouldn't say a completely open mind. I had known that this was their most Jewish film back then, but it, uh, you know, revisiting it, it certainly felt as I remembered, if not more Jewish than I had expected. But what about you, Daniel? When had you first seen it? And, you know, what did you think coming into this rewatch? You know, that's a good question. I think I'm familiar with a lot of the Coen Brothers movies and a lot of their films have traces of Jewish elements and some, you know, characters have Jewish lines and Jewish backgrounds and things like that. But like you said, none more Jewish than this film. I don't remember watching it before for the purpose of, looking at it as a Jewish film. And I honestly, it's, it's been a while. So I, I, there were some scenes that I remember, but other scenes where I was glad that I got to watch it anew, especially through the lens of its Jewishness for the podcast. And yeah, we'll get into it. But before you do, why don't you read the IMDb summary and let our listeners know what this is all about? Sure. And uh, we've got an interesting one for you listeners, especially if you've been keeping track to kind of how we've been not quite rating, but just considering these uh, descriptions. And uh, here it goes. Larry Gopnik, a Midwestern physics teacher, watches his life unravel over multiple sudden incidents. Though seeking meaning and answers amidst his turmoils, he seems to keep sinking. Okay. That's fairly accurate. So Fairly accurate, but... You know, and what I what I was kind of alluding to is the fact that we we have a sort of quasi ranking or just assessment of these of uh, movies yeah. based on their IMDb summaries because we say you know if they if they have to if they feel compelled to throw Jew in the summary then that's kind of our clear giveaway this is a Jewish film and sometimes we would talk about how it wasn't there and it's funny with this one because I don't know if you if you notice but you can you know just sort of hit hit go back you know sixty seconds or so to hear me explaining it but you'll you'll hear I, there was no word Jew in there and mm-hmm. obviously this is just sort of written by you know whoever submitted it to IMDb and we this isn't from the directors and we don't need to read too much into it but I do think that it's fascinating that this movie which is inarguably very 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 explicitly Jewish 
you know, I guess whoever was writing the summary just wanted to sort of generalize and maybe, you know, universalize the messaging of the actual, you know, structure of the film, but never actually spoke about the Jewishness, just about the struggling and the turmoil. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Nice. Yeah, I think I want to get into it. But first, let's take a quick break because I am like chomping at the bit here to get into it. And there's so much to unpack. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're here discussing a serious man. You know, I like to start the film out at the beginning. It's a good place to start. I like that the first thing we see is a quote. It says it's attributed to the commentary of the Torah. His name was Rashi. It's like an acronym for his name. And the quote says, receive with simplicity everything that happens to you. And I think the quote makes sense most after having watched the whole movie, or it helps to sort of like frame what's going to happen. Any thoughts on that quote up top? Yeah, a couple. I mean, I also jumped when I saw it, first of all, you know, and I'm going to say this a lot. There's a lot of things this movie does where it kind of really doesn't over explain itself. And that's true, you know, thematically and with the moralizing of it and with all these questions, it's, it's very metatextual. We'll get into this for sure, but the whole movie is about trying to find meaning and explanation and they don't do that. But, you know, just the way that this movie on a side note, just threw in Rashi, right. And you explain he's a biblical commentary from, you know, a couple hundred years ago and the way that they just put his name in there without, you know, anglicizing it, without giving any explanation, without giving that background, it's sort of like, you know, if you know, you know, of course, but also if you want to learn more, do the research, like do that. Like, we're not going to give you the sort of sweet version. Like they just threw Rashi in there. And I'm sure, you know, I don't know what it is, but a, a large percentage of the people viewing the movie might not have even known, you know, who that was or, you know, what that was. So that, that on one note was very cool, but I also love the actual quote itself because like you were saying, obviously thematically, it's a, it ties in huge to the way that, you know, Larry is trying to find meaning throughout, you know, to everything that happens to him throughout the film and just try to get understanding and explanations. But to me, it also just felt like this statement against, you know, maybe don't try, try not to overthink everything, just accept right. it simply, take it. And that just felt like very Jewish to me that that's sort of like, and anyone who listens to this podcast knows, you know, we're two Jews who probably overthink and stretch a lot of these movies to their sort of bitter end. But just that kind of at the top, like, try not to overthink this, just relax, enjoy it, take it in was I just thought it was a very it felt Jewish to me. But it also just felt like, uh, you know, we know you're going to overthink this movie. So just try to capture it on its simplest level, at least at the top. And I just thought that was cool. I definitely feel like this quote could have also been attributed to Cy Abelman, played by Fred Malamud, just because <laughs> totally. his attitude towards everything, and we'll get into it, is just very like, don't fight the tide, just go with the flow, have a bottle of wine, give me a hug. Let's just let's just go through it. Let's talk through it. So right after that Rashi quote, we have this really nice opening scene that takes place in an Eastern European city with a Yiddish speaking folks. And it's uh, it's sort of a parable But the long and short of it is a man comes home. He sees a person on the side of the road who he helps out. He tells his wife this amazing story. The wife says, well, this person died like three years ago. And then just as she finishes saying that and she discovers it, he knocks at the door, opens the door. They have this very interesting conversation because it's, you know, they they feel like he's a, a dibuk, a demon, and he's just talking to them. And rather than sort of embrace this weird situation, the wife just takes action and she's all the while she's sort of picking ice and sort of talking to her husband. She takes the ice pick and she stabs the man in the chest. He starts laughing. They have a conversation about it. And then he walks out the door more or less. We don't really know 
if he was a Dybbuk. We don't know if he was right. actually feeling better. And then he walks out the door. We also don't know what the connection is to the modern day story, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. That's a wild and incredible sequence. I know I, I read I somewhere. It. I loved it. I loved it. I read a lot of reviews, people talking about those, you know, those first couple of minutes and just assuming they had walked into the wrong movie or, you know, right. turned the wrong thing on. Cause it's really, it has nothing to do with anything, not quite nothing, but at least right, you know, exactly. story or content wise, it has nothing sure. to do with the rest of the movie. Yeah. And they, I, I do think that there's a lot of cool ideas there. There's a lot of cool themes, right? Cause you mentioned that the, you know, the sort of central husband and wife are arguing over whether this man that she, that he says that he met on the street and that she claims died a couple of years ago. So that must be this demon. So they're questioning whether he's actually this Dibbuk, which was another thing where it's like, you know, Jewish, like Zohar kind of like spiritual deep cut that, you know, they did give some explanation. They like, right. you know, there's one moment where, you know, she says like, like they offer him soup and he says he doesn't want it. And she says, see, like Dibbuk's don't eat. And he's right. like, no, right. I'm just not hungry. But the movie definitely puts you in this position of not knowing, you know, who's like, what's, what's what? true. And and they kind exactly. of play both because she stabs him, right? And you mentioned that she stabs him and then he starts laughing. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's not in pain. And she says, see, no pain. Like he must be a dimmick. Right. But then almost as she says that, he says, look, I'm actually starting to feel uh, like sort of like lighthearted. And like he opens his shirt and you see like the blood kind of pooling out right. from like the wound. And it's definitely like playing on both sides. Mm-hmm. I think that it's establishing a just a lot of this sort of uncertainty, this look for answers. Like off the bat, you know, they're teasing their audience. We're we're supposed to be an analog for Larry, I think, throughout the film. But just like, not only the question of you know was he a dibic, what's going on here, you know, what was the right thing to do, what did mm-hmm. you know God want, which is you know a big part of it. But even like the meta question you just said of like, what does this have to do with the movie? How does this play? And is this the key to unlocking all the mysteries? Right. You know, the unresolved mysteries of the movie, or is this just like you know a teaser up front? I wanted to share before passing it back to you just one piece of trivia that I read, you know, on, sure. on our go-to IMDb. And they said, it says the Coen brothers stated that the opening scene has, was nothing more than a little short that they made up to get the audience in the proper mood and that there is no meaning behind it. And that's something they said. I'm going to be on the record here and say, I don't necessarily believe that because sure. I think that a lot of st- this stuff has intention. And I think their biggest philosophy with this movie is like trying to tell the audience not to overthink this stuff and not to try to figure it out. And that sometimes this happens, but I know that they, I, I believe that they were very intentional with it. And I think that there is this huge thematic connection of just questioning ourselves and wondering, you know, what's real and what's not. And, you know, if we're going crazy or if the world's going crazy. So I, I think it's all there in that first piece, but I just thought it was really funny how they kind of said, nope, it was just completely random. Stop trying to read meaning into our movie. Yeah, I don't buy that. I mean, I think it's it's such an effective way to open the film. And it really, like you said, kind of, makes you a little bit unsettled and not sure what's what and what's up and what's down. And I think that, like you said, that feeling continues throughout the film. Is this, is this a good guy? Is this a bad guy? Is is he right? Is he wrong? Is people all of a sudden dying? It happens multiple times in the film. So it's just maybe to prepare us for the yeah. rest of the film. And then immediately after, boom, like hard cut to the credits, a lot of the names in the cast were very, very Jewish, but we'll get to that, you know, towards our end of exactly. our ranking. But I think, you know, the tension builds throughout the film. And so we we start out with Larry Gopnik, who is played by Michael Stolbarg, who I first came across as someone from Boardwalk Empire. And I just remember him in that role as being such a captivating actor. And I think this was his first sort of professional role as an actor. I think prior to this, he was a stage actor. And he's, you know, living in Minnesota in the 1960s. And pretty early on, the the plot is set in motion where his wife says, 
that, you know, he's having a hard time at work. His wife says she wants a divorce. He's up for tenure. And there's just a lot going on. His kids are buzzing around the house. It's just chaos. And it reminded me a lot of like uncut gems in a sense that there's just like so much tension going on a lot. And then there's familial distress. Yeah, I'll jump in on the the uncut gems thing that you mentioned, because one of the things we discussed with that movie, and I want to get this at the top, because it's a big read of the of this movie, specifically a serious man in the thread is this comparison to the biblical text of Job. Yes. Who's this character that experiences a lot of suffering and it's very much mirrored in the opening sequences you're talking about where we have this character of Larry and all of a sudden all these bad things start happening to, to him, at, him at once where he finds very out that his, yeah. his wife wants to divorce him and then he's having trouble at school and then you know he's, he's finding out he might not be up for tenure right in the very funny scene this guy comes into his office and says Larry uh, I feel that as, uh, as head of the tenure committee I should uh, tell you this though should be no cause for concern and you should not at all be worried. We've received a number of letters uh, uh, denigrating you and uh, urging us not to uh, not to grant you tenure. From who? Well, they're they're anonymous, so we we dismiss them completely. <laughs> and I and I mentioned the connection to Uncut Gems because I think we had a similar read of that movie. If you go right. back to the tapes, totally. anyone wants to look back at the older episode, we said it's a very sort of Job analog and. That that read of this movie, specifically A Serious Man, is very, very interesting because, you know, the Job story, he has a lot of these things that he experiences, all of these like terrible things happen to him. And he's this, you know, really, really righteous and upstanding guy, Job, at least in, in that story. And, you know, God is kind of testing him and giving him all this stuff and all of it's happening back to him. But ultimately, he like really pushes back, you know, challenges God, kind of like connects in a very clear and focused way. And, and that kind of all works out. And I, I read a, a lot of comparisons to this movie where the the jobness of all the bad things happening to Larry is certainly there, but the way that Larry kind of meets them and his, yes. you know, not not so much a focused, you know, retort to to God, but really just this confusion and this questioning and this kind of shrinking away is is where those two texts really really depart. And you know, you kind of see that already when his wife tells him about, you know, that she's have that she wants to get married to this man Cy Abelman. He he kind of like just acts confused and shies away. There's no fight. There's no right. You know whatever, trying to like push back for himself. So, you know, and we'll carry that throughout the rest of the movie because a lot of that kind of coexists there. Yeah, definitely. The the response to this trauma is definitely uh, more flight than fight, I would say. And I think, you know, for sure, as things pile up with him, it gets more intense and more intense. And it's very clear that he can't handle it. As you mentioned before, he's up for tenure. A student comes in and wants to change his grade. He tries to bribe him. He passes, you know, money in an envelope, which will become like a, a plot device later in the film. But we're also introduced to other family members in Larry's household. We have his son, Danny, who's preparing for his bar mitzvah, smoking a lot of pot, practicing for his bar mitzvah using records. His daughter is constantly going out to the hole. I think this is maybe like a salon or a club or something like that. And she's, you know, saving up money for a nose job. So there's a lot of, Familiar stuff. The wife is sort of one dimensional. She doesn't really have much of a a role in this film other than being like a plot device as well, which I thought was interesting considering like the Jewish mother, the Jewish matriarch is such a strong piece of this, uh, of at least Jewish culture, I guess I would say. But yeah, I think, you know, the wife, like you said, Harry is, is interested in continuing her relationship with Cy Abelman, who's a very like mellow dude and comparing him with Larry it's kind of interesting 
there's more comparisons to them later on, even to the point where Larry says to a rabbi that he's seeing. Did I tell you I had a car accident the same time Sai had his? The same instant, for all I know. Mm. I mean, is Hashem trying to tell me that Sai Abelman is me? Or that we are all one or something? Sai Abelman and a lot of the characters around Larry are, have, are kind of just living with this uncertainty in a way that they're very able to just kind of go on with their lives and live with mm -hmm. it and be kind of mellow about it. And as he, as Larry kind of increasingly asks these questions and gets, you know, just confused and he's like, why is this all happening? It just feels like everyone else in his life is just very sort of hyper-focused on what they're doing and their own lives that they just sort of fail to, you know, see his own struggles and also just, you know, question in the same way that he is. And, you know, this, and I want to build it before we get into it, but this, this mirrors, I think something similar that happens when, when he meets the second rabbi, because, you know, we haven't gotten to this, but eventually, you know, with all these uncertain things happening in his life, Larry kind of successfully goes to a couple of different rabbis to get some answers. Right. Uh, but before we get to that. Yeah. Don't, don't spoil it too soon. Spoiler alert. I think what might be helpful to like frame this discussion is thinking about, you know, Larry and how he relates to Cy Abelman and then also how he relates to his son, Danny. So one thing that I was thinking about is like, Danny is preparing for his bar mitzvah and that's very stressful. And he deals with it in a certain way, maybe by medicating with, with marijuana. And Larry is also sort of preparing, so to speak, with his tenure and how does he medicate and how does he cope with the stress and how does Cy deal with all this stuff? He just kind of like, you know, gives a hug and goes plays golf and is very, at least on the surface, we don't really get into size mind. On the surface, but I do think that later on in the movie, we there is there are some reveals about what he's kind of been doing in the shadows that, you know, we'll, we'll get to it. But he he has more going on than at least he purports, you know, this sort of sense of just come in and give a hug. There's no animosity here. I'm not upset with you, Larry. We don't need a fight. But, you know, obviously there's more going on there, as we'll see later on in the movie. Yeah, he's a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing, I think. Uh, we bit. also... We're also introduced to Uncle Arthur, who's played by Richard Kind, and that's Larry's brother. He's a bit of a mysterious character at first. He's constantly draining his sebaceous cyst uh, in the back of his neck and drawing in the mentaculus, which is his little book that sort of organizes the world into a series of patterns and a lot of like mathematical things we see. And then also like the names of God. I read about the mentaculus that this was something that the Coen brothers pulled from their real life that they knew someone who had something like this, like a mentaculus. So they kind of worked that into the story. But this is yeah. something that Arthur is working on uh, throughout the film. And he's like a very curious character. And just as you said with Sai, as the film progresses, we find out more and more about them. But yeah, I just wanted to call him out as well before I wanted to set the table a bit before we get started and eat dinner, you know? Arthur, I think, is a fascinating character in this mentaculus, right? He calls it a probability map of the universe. It's a really, he ends up becoming, Arthur ends up becoming a really good analog to, I think, Larry's same kind of struggles with trying to understand and make sense of the, of the uh, universe. And, yeah. and this all fits in thematically, but, you know, obviously we're talking about all this uncertainty that Larry encounters and all of these bad things kind of happening to him. And, you know, the, one of the reasons he struggles so much with actually processing it and making sense of it is because he he says it a couple of times in the film, but he is a very you know rational man and he thinks of things that there are numerous conversations. I, I wrote some down, but he just talks about how, you know, like things like there is a cause and effect for things and things do follow the structure. I think a lot of it comes up in his conversation with um, the student that's trying to bribe him where sure. he tells him, he's like, no, like actions do have consequences and there right. is a reason. And the student's trying to make the case Clive, for no, it's yeah. okay. Just, yeah, just take the money and like, give me a good grade. 
I know for sure that Clive, during their initial conversation, speaks in a way, you know, the wording that he chooses is very mysterious and kind of not exactly what you'd expect from a from a high school student. But I also feel like the fact that, you know, Larry is like a physics professor. And so everything is very logical, like the fact that his world is illogical and things are coming out of nowhere and have no reason and no precedent and just it's just happening all of a sudden to him is very hard to square in with his sort of physics background. Exactly. Exactly. And, th and that's kind of what I was getting at with his brother, where it's just like he has this sort of map probability map of the universe. And that's exactly how Larry thinks about the universe, that there is a clear answer. You know, right. I think one of the the funny and, and sort of telling threads that we see in the movie is he's, he's obviously he's this physics teacher, like you mentioned, and he teaches like some concepts that are sort of premised on uncertainty. You know, one of them we see very early in the film, actually, one of the first scenes is he's teaching about Schrodinger's cat and, right. you know, talks about how like, it's just, you know, the case of, I'm not going to go into the science of Schrodinger's cat and just kind of rely on Come people on. knowing it. But the basic thing is that, you know, there's it, like, he uses that as an example to, to explain this sort of quantum physical phenomenon where you just, you can't tell what a certain, where a certain particle is based on, you know, without probing it, but probing it kind of moves the particle. But the idea that, you know, with the Schrodinger's cat is that, you know, the sort of the metaphor or the, the parable, which, you know, I know we mentioned at the top, there's that, mm -hmm. you know, parabolic story and i'm i'm gonna make this case throughout i think a lot of the messaging that you know that larry receives is framed in a parable but he he doesn't like larry doesn't like the parable but the schrodinger's cat parable just to get into what he actually teaches is it's that you can't there's this cat in a box and you don't know that if it's alive or dead and opening the act of opening the box i think will you know kill the cat and again if there's someone who understands this physics better than me we we have you know reach out to us on instagram explain to me why i'm wrong or why i didn't go into enough detail because i'm sure i'm missing something but it just creates the situation of uncertainty because you can never know the status of the of the cat because it's sort of both alive and dead because you can never actually know. So you have to treat it like it's alive and dead. And once you check it, you know, whatever, again, I'm going to, I'm going to end the segment of like Harry's physics corner because that's, that's as far as I'm going to get here. But what's so interesting about it is that it grapples with this uncertainty. And when he meets with the student, right, the student tells him like, I understand the physics. I know the cat story, but the student says, but I just don't know the math. And Larry's like, no, but the, the math is the thing. Like the math, like the math makes sense. The math is what, like, uh, can't you know what what sort of solves itself. And he even says, like, I don't even like. Care. He goes, I don't even get the, the the cat story so much. I just get the math. Like you know, that's what Larry says. And right. it's just so telling that he's just like, I can't deal with this sort of parable layer, this sort of story layer that we use to try to understand the science. Mm -hmm. I deal very explicitly in like the numbers, in math, and the yeah. things working out. And that's why throughout the movie and as we touch on some of the later scenes, you know, and he's dealt with a lot of cryptic messaging and a lot of, you know, parable messaging, a lot of story, you know, versions trying to explain to him what's going on. He just, he can't take any of these answers. He's a, Larry's a rational man. He wants, he wants to understand what's going on. And you know, that, that sort of clean cut explanation never really does come. Yeah. You know, I think what's also interesting about what you're saying with what he understands versus what everyone else understands throughout his classroom scenes where he's like doodling on the chalkboard and explaining all the facts and the figures and the this, that, and the other. And then we zoom out and it's like 18 chalkboards with all this sort of like physics scribble. And then he like sort of, I think he pauses for questions or like people are getting dismissed and like no one says anything. And he's like, and this is the uncertainty principle or something like that. And it's, it's just, it just goes to so, show you how he sees the world versus how the world sort of exists. And like in his mind, everything sort of makes sense as far as like the stuff that he's written out on the chalkboard, but no one really seems to understand 
what's going and, on. And no one, and I think back to our other point, I think no one seems to care. You know, that's why oh, there yeah. are characters like Cy Abelman, like his wife, that are just like, yeah, we can't do all the math, solve out the explanation of the world, but they're almost comfortable with the uncertainty. And I think that's true for basically every other character. I can't think of anyone who's as plagued, I guess maybe his his brother, right? Because he has that scene later on sure. where he's also struggling with, you know, what God has given him. But, you know, no one else is really as bogged down in the actual math of it. They just want the stories. They just want, you know, to know everything's going to be okay. And to kind of, you know, ignorance is bliss to a certain extent. You know, after he's He's approached by Clive, who wants to bribe him. Uh, so Sai and Judith, his wife, he moves to the Jolly Roger after this very uncomfortable conversation over lunch. They, <laughs> the way that they sort of phrase it is, this is an issue where no one is at odds. Living arrangements. I think we all agree that uh, the children not being contaminated with the tension most important. We shouldn't put the kids in the middle of this, Larry. The kids aren't... I'm saying we. I'm not pointing fingers. No one is playing the blame game, Larry. I didn't say anyone was. Well, let's not play he said, she said either. I, I wasn't. I... All right, look, look, look. Let's just take a step back and, and we can diffuse the situation. Really? To keep things on an even keel leading up to Danny's bar mitzvah? Child's bar mitzvah, Larry. Si and I think it's best if you move out of the house. He's just sort of flummoxed and doesn't understand what's going on. So he moves into this Jolly Roger apartment or this motel with his brother. And he, you know, he, seri he seems to have like these fever dreams during his stay at the Jolly Roger. And I wanted to touch on that really quickly. He has these very like scary dreams, uh, you know, Cy Abelman pinning him up against his chalkboard and bashing his face in using all these, uh, expletives about his wife and and then he has a dream about this his neighbor mrs samsky who he saw nude sunbathing he dreams about her later and then the last dream which we'll get into a little bit more but it's uh featuring his neighbors so the neighbors we got to talk about that for a second they are the only sort of non-jewish presence in the film um and the neighbors are you know constantly playing ball with each other playing catch Turns out that the neighbors are like mowing part of his lawn, which is kind of an annoying thing for him. And then they go hunting as well. But I want us to get your thoughts on like the the neighbors who are not Jewish. They call them the Goyish neighbors. What do they represent for you? Yeah, like in some sense, I think they represent a very different sort of lifestyle. And we talk about, you know, the these sort of Jewish, you know, these, these Jewish conceptions of the sort of like, you know, the, the people of the book and these very sort of textual and this very, you know, overthinking and that kind of characterization of, you know, a Jewish character. And it felt to me like, you know, his neighbor, the, the sort of Goyish neighbor kind of stands in very stark contrast with that. You know, they're these very, you know, tough, intimidating guys, very kind of quiet, like men of, you know, a couple of words, right? He first interacts with, you know, the, the sort of his neighbor and then his neighbor's son who are out for the day because they went hunting for the day. And he even makes it, Larry even makes a comment. He says, isn't this a school day? Come out of school today so he could hunt with his dad. Just like very matter of fact and very sure. much not bogged down in the intricacies and the intellectualism in that, you right. know, I think in, in that sort of like people of the book, you know, like studying, it's just, it's, it's much more you know, outdoorsy. It's much more, you know, doing things with your hands. I, I think right. it was supposed to be, you know, stark contrast and a different mode of what we've been describing a lot of these periphery characters as being people who, you know, 
aren't bogged down in the big questions of life and aren't overthinking things. You know, each of them kind of has their own thing that preoccupies them. So for the sake of his neighbor, I think it's just, you know, they're out hunting, they're doing their own thing. And I think Larry specifically in their case, just can't understand that. Doesn't know why this guy took his, his son out of, out of school. I just doesn't understand, you know, how to interact with him when he tries to fight him over like the property line. It's the, there's this clear disconnect and Larry right. kind of shies away from it. Yeah, it's interesting with the with the property line, like we were mentioning, I think there's one chat where the, where Larry sees that his neighbor is going to build a shed and it's sort of on the poplar line. And Larry comes in with this sort of long sort of discussion about the property line, but doesn't really get it out because he's sort of mumbling and, and fumbling. And as you said, it, the neighbor is like a man of few words. He says, measure. I don't have to measure. You can tell it's lines a, of poplar. The poplar being like the tree that's right in front of them. And like you said, man, a few words, very simplistic, not overthinking things. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a good call out. And and the neighbors even show up in a dream. You know, Larry later on in the film is is giving his brother money and sending him away to Canada. And as he's sort of floating away on this canoe in a lake, they're shot uh, by the hunter. The, the brother is shot in the back of the head by the hunter's. After Cy and Judith and Larry, you know, meet up, Larry moves into the Jolly Roger with his brother, Arthur. He finds out after retaining a lawyer that his wife, Judith, has emptied his bank accounts. And so then he retains, a, a, you know, a divorce lawyer, but also a lawyer to look into property lines. And he definitely has a crisis for of faith at this point. And I forget who, maybe it's either Cy or his brother, Arthur, who suggests that he kind of looks looks inside and, and looks in, looks for some faith. Oh, I think it's actually when he's playing on the beach with yes. uh, Arthur's in the water and his son's playing in the water and things like that. And someone actually suggests. It's not always easy deciphering what God is trying to tell you, but it's not something you have to figure out all by yourself. We're Jews. We've got that well of tradition to draw on to help us understand. When we're puzzled, we have all the stories that have been handed down from people who had the same problems. She's instantly coming to him with this sort of like, and I think this is rooted in a lot of Jewish, you know, Jewish Talmudic tradition. We have, yeah. you know, with Midrash, you know, this collection of these different like stories, these parables that are used to kind of tell, you know, greater truths, highlight greater stories, and maybe not the most explicit way. And we already spoke about how, you know, Larry is this very rational person and it's very hard for him to get on, you know, that wavelength of translating a very vague and esoteric story. But you no, know, it's, it's very cool here that she points out that, you know, that that is our tradition. We use the stories of the people that happened before us to guide our future. And that kind of sends him on this reluctant path, I would say, to, you know, talk to the rabbi because she says, you know, talk to the rabbi. And he says, you know, what would what would he say? And she says, if I knew I would be the rabbi, but I'm not. So you got to go talk to them. So that's that sets up the first of his three encounters with different rabbis in the community. Yeah. So first he meets up with Rabbi Scott, who's a junior rabbi played by Simon Helberg. But I believe he wanted to see Rabbi Nochner, who's played by George, George Weiner from Spaceballs fame and other movies. And ultimately, there's a third rabbi, Rabbi Marshak, but we'll get to him in a second. The first rabbi, the junior rabbi, Scott, uh, you know, he's very, very cool looking rabbi, short sleeved, white button up shirt, nice skinny tie, very much a man of the man of the people, man of the community. And, you know, they talk to each other and 
You have to see these things as expressions of God's will. You don't have to like it, of course. Boss isn't always right, but he's always the boss. <laughs> That's right. Things aren't so bad. Look at the parking lot, Larry. This first rabbi basically tells him, you know, his solution to these questions of what's going on, why is everything, you know, so terrible? And he he kind of guides him in this mode of, you know, it's all about perspective. And mm -hmm. he's like, if you just think of it as, you know, you're thinking of these questions, why are all these bad things happening to me? But if you really change your perspective and realize, you know, what good God has given you and how that's manifesting, you know, you'll be happy. And he makes this big point of looking out the window and he says, look at right. that parking lot. How incredible is that? You know, God created that. It's amazing. And they don't just say God, they say Hashem, which sure. you know, obviously is how we refer to God uh, in Judaism. And that's just another deep cut that, you know, I think we, we mentioned this in another movie that says Hashem, maybe it was Uncut Gems, which might honestly be cousins with this movies in, in some ways but if a movie's going to throw in Hashem then it, it's already getting an extra star for me but wow. anyways he he does he, he does this big rant where he says you know just have a good perspective and it's this very youthful like you know if you just you're thinking yeah. about this wrong and for a moment I think Larry actually is moved by this there's a later scene where uh, I forget who he's meeting with but you know he says to him like how are things going and he's like good. Like, yeah, I'm getting divorced, but I, I think it's, it's opening me up to what I really have and showing me new opportunities. It's when he's meeting his lawyer that right. Larry kind of responds like that. And his lawyer looks at him quizzically like, really? Mm. Do you really yeah. think that? And Larry goes, I don't know. I'm not sure. And he's trying you know, it on, you know, he's, he's trying on this perspective thing, but it, it's definitely not sticking. I think as uh as hard, you know, as he needs it to. Absolutely. After meeting with the first rabbi, who's sort of the junior and not exactly who he had planned to meet up with initially, he then meets up with Rabbi Nachner, who's our second rabbi. And similar to, you know, the beginning of the movie where we have this really nice parable, he tells the second rabbi, Rabbi Nachner, while dipping, you know, his tea in his mug and sort of <laughs> the whole scene, I think, was just kind of interesting. He tells a, he tells a very interesting story of another a congregant of his who is a dentist. And one day he's inspecting someone's teeth who is a non-Jew. And he has the Hebrew letters on the inside of his teeth that spell out the word Hoshiani, which is save me. Um, and he thought he was going crazy. So then he goes and checks everyone else's teeth and he checks again and it's still there. He checks his own teeth and this and that. And there's a very long story that Rabbi Nachner tells. And then we cut back to both of them sitting in his office and he says, Who put it there? Was it for him, Sussman, or for whoever found it, or for just, for, for- We can't know it? everything. It sounds like you don't know anything. Why even tell me the story? <laughs> First I should tell you, then I shouldn't. <laughs> These questions that are, that are bothering you, Larry, maybe they're like a toothache. Mm -hmm. Feel them for a while, then they go away. I don't want it to just go away. I want an answer. Sure. We all want the answer. Hashem doesn't owe us the answer, Larry. Hashem doesn't owe us anything. The obligation runs the other way. Why does he make us feel the questions if he's not going to give us any answers? And so at that point, you know, Larry's a little bit confused, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this story and sort of, it's a very bizarre story and it kind of thematically fits, but it's also like a bit mysterious and kind of supernatural. Um, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's a bit I, not grounded, whereas everything totally. else is fairly grounded. 
Totally. It's very supernatural. I agree with you, which kind of lends it to the realm of, you know, the sort of midrash that I just mentioned, which, you know, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, this is very, this is probably the most explicit, you know, parable that Mm -hmm. is sort of used to solve a story. Whereas, you know, the first rabbi at least tried to give him some, you know, sound advice, change your perspective, think about it a different way. And even if that wasn't enough for Larry, at least it was clear and I would say rational, right? Mm -hmm. To the point that Larry should be able to understand. But this one was clearly just like, this very mystical story of, you know, that kind of resolves itself, not in any answers to the question, but almost in more questions, you know, in that Mm -hmm. sort of very roundabout and I would say Jewish, you know, midrashic way of just, you know, like, he's like, what, like, what is it? Like you said, you know, the rabbi goes, what does it matter? What happened? You know, why does it like matter? You know? So, so Larry actually asks him, he says, okay, but based on this experience, right. Cause the, the dentist was looking for all these teeth. He was trying to make, you know, make meaning out of it and eventually came to the same rabbi to say, what's going on here? What does God want for me? Does God want me to, you know, save this, this guy, right? This person whose teeth he was cleaning. Does he want me to save like myself? Like, what is the point of this? And so Larry asks the rabbi, he says, so what did you say to him when he asked you all that? And he says, eh, I told him, I don't know. You know, we can't know what God wants, but be, do good things to other people because, you know, what, like that can't hurt, right? right. It's nice to do sure. some good things. But, um, but it's just, it's, it's like such a perfect, you know, you see it on Larry's face, I think after he's met with that answer, because this is so not what he was looking for. He wanted certainty. He wanted an answer. He wanted to know, you know, like he, he believes in this very moral and this moral, like ruling of the world. I, it seems like his relationship with, you know, God, his Jewishness is predicated on this notion of if he does good things, if he does good, good will happen to him. And he's expecting, you know, and like we said at the top, he's not like this Job character. He's not this extremely righteous figure who is doing everything right from the outset. We, we kind of see him. He's sort of morally gray. He, he doesn't accept the bribe cracks. in the beginning. We see some cracks though. Right. Exactly. He has like, he's not always the best, you know, with his family and not the most present. And he's clearly, you know, kind of just like a normal guy, but it's still, he, he just, he doesn't expect all the terrible things that are happening to him. He, He doesn't understand how that could be, how that could be and why that's all happening to him. And, you know, this encounter, I would say leaves him almost more, more confused than maybe, uh, when he started, cause it's just an answer of, you know, who knows it's not right. I think the rabbi says it's not for, you know, we, we, God doesn't owe us anything. In fact, it goes the other way. You know, we owe God something. So stop asking questions and just embrace being a good Jew. Right. So uh, we forgot to mention that after seeing or before seeing Rabbi Nochner, Cy Abelman unexpectedly dies in a car accident. And this is around the same time that Larry also gets into a car accident at the same moment. In fact, the movie takes pains to cross cut the two scenes together. And I almost thought for a second that Larry was going to hit Cy or Cy was going to hit Larry and something like that. But it turns out that Cy Abelman passes away and Larry is welcomed back in the house to help his wife, you know, cope with the grief that she's had. Um, it's a very awkward situation where he's, he's, it's put in a very awkward situation, but like you said, he's taking it with stride for now. I think eventually, as we said, he's, he's he even, going his cracks. And so he's starting to break a little bit. Right. And he even pays for Sai's funeral, right? Judith, his wife insists that he pays for it. So he's just, he's in this what place. Of, yeah. And he's just like, what is going on? Why am I doing any of this? You know, and that's yeah. kind of the reason that he even encountered, he, he goes to the second rabbi because, you know, the, the, the answer from the first rabbi of just sort of taking on a new perspective, it doesn't really work when something as seemingly, you know, mystical and just 
you know, coincidental, I'd say, you know, happens like that happens with this, you know, with, with, uh, with side dying. And he even says, he says like, I don't, is this a good thing? Like, does this mean that things are going to go back to normal? Do I want them to go back to normal? You know, it just sets up a, a whole new set of questions that, you know, he didn't have before. Right. So one day while fixing up his son's, uh, TV antenna. I, I don't know for those who are not familiar, TV used to come over the airwaves. And so you'd have to hmm. fix the aerial. <laughs> this is a lesson. <laughs> a lesson for Harry. Uh, so he, yeah, his son, Danny is kind of while watching, um, you know, while listening to his bar mitzvah lessons and smoking pot, one of his, also his pastimes is watching a show called F troop. So he's constantly nagging his dad to fix the aerial. In fact, I think he calls him either at the lawyer's office. Yeah, I think he calls him at the lawyer's office to say, fix the aerial, meaning fix the antenna on top of the roof. So he goes up on the roof and he sees his neighbor, Mrs. Samsky, played by Amy Landecker. Uh, she's sunbathing nude. And he kind of, you know, watches her for a little bit. And I think later on, he gets the idea to go over to her house and sort of, you know, after his life has seemingly hit rock bottom at this point, he goes over and sort of sees what what could happen. And he goes over, you know, I, I saw a great video where it talks about her being this sort of woman of mystery. She's got this like smoky eye and like sort of Egyptian makeup. And, uh, you know, she's behind a screen door, but she kind of lets him in and, and is very mysterious, but also a Jew. You know, she's got a mezuzah on the door and he goes in and they play records together. She offers him some iced tea and she she smokes a joint with him. And that kind of like opens up his perspective a little bit and kind of makes him see the world maybe like to what Rabbi Scott was saying with a little bit of wonder with a brand new perspective. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, throughout this film, there's a lot of subplots we're not really touching on. You know, Danny has his bar mitzvah also while stoned. So the two um, experiences are kind of similar Danny's going through this very like moving, uh, this very momentous occasion while under the influence and is has the sort of same view as his dad, where like the edges of the frame are blurry and this the, the center is focused. And you think he's gonna choke, but eventually he succeeds and does very well. And while, you know, Larry is trying to see the third rabbi, Rabbi Marshak, Larry's not able to. There's a very comic scene where he talks to the secretary who like sort of putters to the back. The rabbi's sort of sitting at a desk and then she putters back and she says he's busy and he doesn't quite understand what's going on. But after Danny is bar mitzvahed, he does in fact get to see Rabbi Marshak uh, who gives him back his confiscated Walkman and quotes Jefferson Airplane to him. And that is sort of his piece of wisdom, which again is very like in fitting with the theme of like, the rabbis like the first rabbi is very approachable advice the second rabbi a little bit more esoteric and then third rabbi is quoting some song then the truth is found to be lies and all the hope within you dies which makes no sense at all. Your thoughts on Rabbi Marshak and his advice to Danny as a young bar yeah. mitzvah boy. Yeah, I think that that advice, it's, you know, there's two ways to read it. There's the version of just sort of getting roped into the sort of trap that I think Larry's struggling with of just trying to parse out meaning and find your answers. And, right. you know, like you mentioned, 
he, he quotes the song that we've heard Danny listening to, you know, on mm-hmm. this Walkman. So it seems like the rabbi has listened to it. And mm-hmm. you know, I wrote down some of the lines. It's, you know, when the truth is found to be lies and all hope within you dies, then what? And, you know, on one end, I think one reading of it is just like, he's say so he's quoting the song back to him. It's supposed right. to sound cryptic. Does it actually mean anything? Depends what, depends if you wanted to, right? If right. you wanted to, then... You know, the, the truth is found to be lies. The hope within you dies. I mean, that honestly does parallel a lot of Larry's experience sure, that he's sure. he's become hopeless and everything he's known to be true. You know, this whole sense of, you know, right and wrong in the world, this sense of, you know, morality and justice for, you know, good actions. It's it's found to be lies. And, you know, what are you supposed to do? And then when he hands the Walkman back to um, to Danny, he kind of just says, you know, be a good boy. And it, it almost feels like there's on one end, there's this very cryptic, you know, maybe layered meaning about what to do when nothing goes with how you're expecting it and right. everything is challenged and whatever. And on the other end, it's just, you know, there's a lot of distraction. Just be a good boy. It's the one yeah. thing that we know we could do. It's the one thing we can control. It's the one thing we can focus on. And maybe, sure. maybe that's the answer that he's needed all along that, you know, Larry doesn't even receive, right? It comes to his son who I doubt is going to really share it with Larry, but yeah. you know, that's kind of the, that's just the be all end all just be a good boy. Right, exactly. What did you think of it? I mean, I thought it was interesting, kind of anticlimactic. I would love to have seen a scene between Larry and Rabbi Marshak, but I think that's sort of the point, right? Like everyone's sort of expecting that sort of to happen and it doesn't. Keeping with the theme of like, you think you have everything settled? Well, we're going to flip your expectations upside down. You know, after Danny sees Rabbi Marshak, we, we then see Larry meeting up with his divorce lawyer and another lawyer to talk about his brother's case, his property stuff going on with his neighbor. And then also uh, with, you know, his wife and out of the blue, out of nowhere, the partner lawyer dies just from a heart attack collapses. That leaves Larry a bit more shocked. He heads back to his office after having just seen a death. He gets another phone call from the record company who's been hounding him this entire time. I think it's a predecessor to like the Columbia house record a setup where they send you a record of the month and they charge him money. He has no idea what's going on. He's This is the first he's heard of it. He's sort of beside himself having just witnessed the death. I think if we're talking about body count, this is the second one of the film. You know, this is definitely where things start cracking a bit more. This also happens after, I think, things started to kind of be righted in his life. Like all of a right. sudden the, the bar mitzvah sequence, we just talked we, we spoke about earlier where, you know, his son, Danny is like, seems like he's going to fail and then kind of has the successful bar mitzvah. You know, like you said, the entire time you're waiting for something to happen. You know, he was, you know, sitting there high. I'm waiting for him to trip over or pass out or something or, you know, vomit over all over the Torah, which is a, a story that I have heard has happened before in the past. But uh, yeah, but like you're expecting something bad to happen, but then it happens, you know, it's good. And that, and then, you know, his wife Judith looks at him and they kind of at Larry and they hold hands and they're kind of proud of, you know, their son together. And it's their first genuine moment. And, you know, that's undercut a little bit because that's when Judith says to to, to Larry that she's like, you know, Cy really respected you. He wrote a lot of letters to the uh, tenure committee on your behalf. Ooh, yeah. And it kind of cracks. And we mentioned this earlier that Cy seems like this all nice character. But one of the threads we didn't touch on in the movie is that the entire time larry is being told that someone keeps writing these anonymous you know anonymously written but like you know kind of letters basically denigrating him and saying that he's a bad teacher and kind of telling them not to give him tenure and the the professor who tells him that is just i just wanted to let you know we're not going to consider them but you should know that someone keeps sending these letters and so that that kind of undercuts i would say the the joy and he does point out that these letters are written by somebody who is a native english speaker 
So we kind of quickly rule out that it is not Clive, our South Korean student who is giving him trouble and bragging. Exactly. That that helps us piece together that it must have been Sai. So so that kind of revelation definitely undercuts a little bit more of the joy at the end. But there definitely is this moment towards the end of the film, right? Right before some of these like final scenes, right before, like you're saying, the scene where the lawyer dies, where it feels like, okay, the bar mitzvah went well. You know, he's kind of moving in again because Sai is out of the picture and he's getting along with his brother, Arthur. And all of a sudden it feels like, Maybe he was just struggling just for things to be good again. You know, that's back back to the story that we highlighted at the top, right? The, the sort of analog we mentioned to the biblical story of Job. You know, that is what happens a lot in the text of Job after, you know, chapters and chapters of Job's suffering. Eventually, he is rewarded kind of like twice. I think it's like twice fold or something for, you know, what he had before. And, you know, it's it's a kind of, you know, he loses all of his possessions. And he in, in that story, he loses a lot of his family. But then he's given, you know, new possessions and a, an even larger family, you know, twice as many kids as he had and just you know which is a a complicated trade-off that we're not going to get into now but there's just this like real happy ending i I saw an article referred to the story of job as having more of a cinematic ending but Mm -hmm. that's not quite what we're going to get from you know a serious man although for a moment it almost seems like maybe his family's coming together maybe he's going to do well he's about to get tenure you know maybe things are going to be you know good for him but you know then when i think that that scene you just mentioned where the lawyer dies that kind of sends him into shock again. Like just when he thought things were going to be normal again, the lawyer who was the really great lawyer that was going to defend him and get him out of trouble, you know, dies in front of him, which is admittedly pretty jarring. Absolutely. We've mentioned throughout the latter part of the film, you know, as he's staying at the Jolly Roger motel with his brother, Arthur, he has a series of sort of what I would call fever dreams. You know, they don't introduce them as dreams or they sort of end each of those dreams with him kind of like waking up in shock. And so, you know, his first dream is about Cy Abelman, you know, while in the classroom, sort of beating him up, smashing him up against the chalkboard. His second dream is after he mis- meets Miss- Mrs. Samsky and uh, they do have sex in the dream. They start having sex, but like all these dreams that kind of end very shockingly and suddenly, all of a sudden he starts to see Cy Abelman standing over him, putting the boards of a right. of a coffin on top of him and kind of sealing him in and that kind of jolts him awake. So, you know, all these dreams kind of end in a sort of sudden and shocking, you know, ending to what otherwise would have been a sweet moment, which is just like the third dream, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the third dream is with his brother, Arthur, as he's sending him off, you know, they're driving up a, up a road and they stumble upon a lake seemingly in Canada, according to a sign. Right. It's like by the border. He's sending him to Canada to evade right. the police that you right. know, are, are trying to get him. And, you know, as a way to save his brother from the police who was also caught gambling. So he's been in a number of run-ins with the law and it's best that he sends him off. So he puts him in a canoe, sends him off, has a envelope full of money that he has had throughout the film, you know, from his student that he has not used up until this point. He gives it to his brother and sends him off with that money. And as he's paddling away, he is shot by his hunter neighbors. And I think, you know, the dreams are analyzing or commenting on certain aspects of his life. I think the last dream for me, working backwards, would be like, you know, maybe the fact that he's sort of embracing this amorality with taking the money has caused him to have those closest to him die. But curious on your thoughts about the dreams, you know, they were all like pretty shocking dreams and they, you know, served a good purpose to sort of put the viewer at unease and definitely put Larry at unease. But your thoughts on the dreams? 
Yeah, I, I like that read of the amoral thing because even in the second dream we were talking about, you know, having sex with his neighbor. You know, we know that the, his neighbor's married. She mentions that her husband is, you know, he goes out, uh, he he just goes traveling a lot and, you know, presumably on business. So, you know, the, the concept of the notion of him going over when he's not home and having sex with her, you know, sort of cheating on her husband, like that, that's another amoral act. And it's born out of this desire that comes from this place of, Larry's entire life crumbles around him. And, you know, he's already thinking about this when, you know, Sai is still alive, but Sai is, you know, going with, you know, his wife, Judith, and they're kind of, you know, like leaving him to rot. And he's got into this place where he's, he's almost tempted. And he's like, you know, maybe I don't have to be the sort of upstanding Jew that, you know, I needed to be. And it's funny in the, both those later two dreams, once he starts flirting with doing something amoral, you know, something really bad happens to him. And I think that's subco- that represents, you know, these are dreams, right? So of course that represents part of his subconscious kind of dealing with, you know, this, this temptation and the sort of morality crisis that I think he has. And, you know, part of it, I think is just the confusion and the meaning that we try to get out of these very sudden dreams. Like you said, this is very sort of sudden and very dramatic and ropes you in and, you know, do you, do you think that these are, do you think the Cohen brothers are intention aside, but do you think we're supposed to, you know, get strict meaning from these and tie these to the rest of the film? Or did you read them more as just these, you know, these confusing, again, to say, to repeat myself, but just more parables to kind of give us a, you know, a different version of the same story that we're watching. I mean, I think it's in sticking with the theme of this being like a Jewish film and having like biblical allusions and things like that. There's a lot of characters throughout the Bible that have had dreams directly or indirectly inform their fate or things that they were thinking about. So dreams have like a long tradition as with all cultures, you know, I think uh, the dream device kind of helps get into the mind of the character, literally like, you knowing what they're thinking and, you know, they don't necessarily like inform his decisions all the time, but it's certainly lets the viewer get into their headspace in a way that I think is much more visceral than saying, boy, I'm really thinking about Cy Abelman a lot, or I'm thinking about Mrs. Zamsky a lot, or my brother, or things like that. I think it's, it's a stylistic choice and I think it works well, but you know, as we kind of round the corner and get to the end of the film, I think, you know, after seeing all this stuff happen and, Larry being where he is just mentally, he decides to go back to his office. He opens up his drawer. He sees like a $3,000 bill from the lawyer. And then he kind of looks at the money a second time and maybe decides that this is something he could use. And then also, so he changes that that student's grade from an F to a C, but then puts that minus on there. It's like a little, uh, you know, I'm not giving you a, a full pass, but uh, you know, I'm going to be able to have a little bit of agency in my life. And then also uh, his doctor calls with some serious test results that he really wants to talk to him in person about. And we're cross-cutting that scene with Danny, uh, who's in Hebrew school and there's a tornado going on. So they're trying to open the door to get to the bomb shelter or to get to the shelter downstairs as a tornado closes in. And uh, that's sort of where the movie ends. None of these scenes resolve. We'd have no idea what's going on. But the end credits happen there and I'm just like, what? What's going on? Like, this is certainly in keeping with the theme of the film. I thought this was an interesting way to end the film. But how did you feel about the end? Yeah, I think it's another great tease from from the directors, from the Coen brothers, where, you know, we finally have this moment. This guy that, like we said, has not the most upstanding guy, Larry, not the worst guy in the world, but has been in this very morally gray area. And it's kind of like a Chekhov's gun situation where we were introduced to this 
Um, uh, sorry, a Chekhov's gun situation. Chekhov gun, you know, he, he famously said, you can again look this up if you want to get the uh, actual details of this, but he was this playwright who basically said that, you know, if you introduce a, a weapon in the first, you know, in the first act of a film, it has to be fired by the third act of the film, right? A gun. So I, I'm just referring to this, uh, this, this money as a sort of Chekhov's gun where we, he kind of gets this bribe from the student, refuses to take it, but doesn't really get rid of it, kind of just slips it into his desk. And we saw in the dream sequence, he thought about giving it to Arthur to kind of send him on his way. But finally, he's like, after he's hit his breaking point, this scene comes immediately after the lawyer uh, dies in front of him. And he's just like, nothing in the world makes sense. And that's kind of his breaking point where he says, I'm just going to take the money. I need it. I need it to pay for this, uh, for this new bill that I got. And he takes the money and he makes this decision and he kind of smiles. He gives, like you said, the C minus instead of the F. And it's like, if, if what he learned from the movie is that nothing really matters and, you know, there's nothing, you know, we're not rewarded for good behavior. We're not punished for bad behavior. I can do what I want. <laughs> this feels like his moment of, I'm just going to take advantage and I'm going to do something that's, you know, a little bit amoral. And what's such a tease, I think from, from the directors from the movie is that, all of a sudden things start to get really, really bad. Almost as soon as that happens, he gets a phone call right away from a doctor who says, you know, you're going to have to come in to discuss this, you know, you know, the findings from your x-ray. And Larry even says, like, can't we just talk about it over the phone? And the doctor says, no, I think this would be a better conversation in person. So, you know, it's bad. And then, you know, the, their entire community is about to be threatened by this huge tornado. And it's a tornado, I think is, is awesome because it's the first, like, Obviously, tornadoes are natural, but this sort of right. sudden tornado feels like a very supernatural, like spite, you know, smiting from God, you know, exactly. himself. it's like he right, finally right. does this action. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, you weren't rewarded for any of the good behavior you thought you were doing. But, but the first time you do this very explicitly bad action, it's like boom. because you think that there are no real consequences to your actions. Finally, you. it's like maybe there was meaning all the time. And I think it's another tease by the Coen brothers. And I think the truth is maybe this was just a series of coincidences and we just don't know what God wants and that, you know, these sort of plans are very ambiguous and up in the air, but this kind of final tease of like, okay, we're going to put some, you know, sort of causative action, you know, following what he did is just, I just think it's like a perfect kind of ambiguous ending playing with the end. And, and like you said, we cut as the tornado is approaching. So you just never really learn, you know, what happens if they survive, if, you know, what, what ends up happening with these characters. It's a perfect way to end the film. And another Chekhov's gun that I was thinking about is that we forgot to mention, I think one of the first scenes of the film is we see Larry getting x-rayed. And so yes. like, it all gets kind of resolved at the last minute of the film, which is, a, a, like I said, a pretty cool way to end the film in keeping with the theme of just sort of chaos in an, in a logical world for Larry. But um, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to give our rating and review of the film, A Serious Man. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We've now arrived at the last section of our podcast where we go through the Jewish, the film's Jewishness in terms of its content, cast and crew and themes and just come up with a final ranking to describe, you know, how Jewish really was it. And then ask some of the follow up question of, you know, good or bad for the Jews. So thanks, Gil. Daniel. Thank you, Gil, for that, uh, that recommendation. So, uh, Daniel, why don't you get us started on this one? And I know there's a ton to tackle, so I'm, I'm really interested to hear to hear sort of where you jump into this movie. But, you know, how did you think about its Jewishness? You know, you can go cast and crew. There's a lot of that. You can go content. There's a ton of that. You can go themes. I'd argue there's really a lot of that. So, you know, pick your pick your battle. Where do you want to start? I feel like I'm at a buffet and like all the stuff is really good stuff, but it's all very filling stuff. So I can't fill up on all of it. 
you know, like if about you're portion at, control, it's portion control, but it's also not loading up too much on the proteins. You also have to like add some leafy greens because those are light but filling. So I'll try awesome. to pace myself a little bit. I hope you follow this metaphor all the way through. Oh, absolutely. You can count on it. The cast and crew is Jewish. <clears throat> the Cohen brothers are Jewish. I think all of the all of the main characters in my mind are Jewish and they do a terrific job. I think it adds so much to the credibility of the film. The Hebrew teacher is, you know, speaking Hebrew the entire time. The bus says Talmud Torah on it. You know, everyone who's speaking Hebrew and Yiddish seem to have it come out, at least in the film, as like their native tongue. So I would say very high for me on the cast and crew. The content itself, the story of what happens to him, there are a lot of like Jewish story arcs, you know, seeing the rabbis, studying for a bar mitzvah, listening to a bar mitzvah lesson, going to Hebrew school. Uh, you know, there, there. I was going to say there was not a service, but there is a service. There is a funeral service. There's Shiva sitting. You know, him being a professor at a university, one could argue is a Jewish pastime, you know, a lot of liberal Jewish professors and things like that. That's a trope as well that we explore. So content like, yeah, it's pretty Jewish as well. Themes is where I want to dig in, but I almost want to say this is dessert for you. So could we do the first two for you and then we'll come back and we'll just do a discussion of the themes together. We'll have like a family style meal. <laughs> you really you you kept to that metaphor. I appreciate. I told that, you I would. In terms of pacing, that that's clever. We you just kind of wet the appetite a little bit. You that's know, it. some appetizers. It's almost like the, the prereqs before we can even discuss the themes. It's like that's let's it. just acknowledge at the top this is a fully Jewish cast and crew, more or less. You know, I'm yeah. sure there are a couple of people, but maybe not. And this is you know very very Jewish in its content wise. I'll I'll agree with you and just say I was thinking about you a lot. I mean, first of all, in that opening scene, right, the Thank Yiddish you. and just the characters and the accents, and Great. as far as I could tell, you know, Chef's as kiss. a non-native speaker, yeah. exactly the attention to detail the divic the you know the deep cuts it was all there i'll note that in those opening scenes right with the first i think one of the first scenes in the movie we see danny in, in a hebrew class and his teacher is just talking in hebrew it's it's clearly like an, a hebrew class because he's mm -hmm. going through basic sort of like word verb structure and sentence structure and you know there were no subtitles and i was just like you know oh, the yeah. amount of movies that i've seen that weren't subtitled that have a scene in you know a foreign language that's not necessarily hebrew because i am i am not a man of many languages i am native English and I have a pretty good understanding and ability to speak Hebrew, although don't test me on this pod because uh, I might embarrass myself, but you know, by, yeah, Harry, no problem. <laughs> so I have a little bit of an understanding of Hebrew, but you know, just to be able to watch a movie and a thing that I've seen, I've noticed lots of movies do where they kind of like flip languages and say, right. it's not essential to the story. If you know, you know, if not, you know, don't right. worry. And to just figure out what was going on. It was like, this is, you know, this was written with, you know, from a Jewish perspective, you know, a Jewish Hebrew speaking perspective. And, you know, in some senses with that audience in mind that if you know, you know, you'll, you'll get what's going on. So totally. there, there's so much there. And just, you know, the threads like, you know, I don't know what if you ask someone what, you know, take what does it take for a movie to be Jewish? You know, talking to a rabbi, there's plenty of scenes of those Points. like going to going to synagogue, praying, Points. leaning from the Torah. <laughs> Points. Like, I just exactly like I'm trying to think of, you know, and I know that we, we have, you know, I, I have I definitely have a sort of narrow, you know, not a, a narrow scope of what it means to be Jewish, but I, I know my own experience. I don't know sure. everyone's experience. And I'm sure there mm -hmm. are facets that, you know, we're not touched by this movie, but it's hard for me to come up with it because even though I don't think they were, you know, the, you know, they didn't practice their Judaism in exactly the same way that I did. I, there were so many familiar, you know, sort of icons of the Jewish experience and just mm -hmm. 
even on the deeper levels of like the Jewish, you know, characterization and just who this guy Larry is. Like he is, if he was in any other movie, I think we would have read him maybe as a little bit coded Jewish and a little bit as like a Jewish character. So mm-hmm. there is, there is so much there in terms of the content and the, uh, and the creation. And, you know, depending on where we get with this themes category, I think it's becoming a little bit clear where I'm about to go with my ranking. But before I do that, because we, we keyed it up and it sounds like you have some good ideas there. So I wanted to let you jump in with some of the themes that you were, that you were saving the, the sort of main course that you were sitting on and get us going. So I actually prepared like a turducken of 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 the main you know the themes right <clears throat> there's so much in here and i think it's um it's all sort of beautifully displayed right i think you know that this idea of like inherited trauma or inherited sort of baggage you know i think about like original sin you know this idea that like eve ate from the apple and was tempted by the snake and therefore women uh, you know, some believe that is they have to, you know, have the the sin, the the pain of childbirth and things that there's all these things because because of what Eve did. So that so that is maybe a bit of a I'm getting on the stretch train a little early today, but I thought to about I thought about that, you know, parable as it relates to Larry's life. And I think it's not completely a stretch to say, oh yeah, these are his ancestors who committed this grave sin. Again, a woman who committed a grave sin, and now Larry has to pay the price for it. I think the idea of this seeing three different types of rabbis and getting three different types of advice sort of goes to show you a couple of things that like not all rabbis are the same. Not all rabbis may give you the answer you're looking for, and it's not like a magic bullet solution. So I think it's up to each person to kind of carve out their own lane as far as how they want to view the world, how they want to observe Judaism and things like that. And, you know, I think about like, what does it mean, this whole idea of a serious man? Sai talks about this a lot. What is a serious man? I don't know. Does it mean someone who takes his job seriously, who is serious religiously, I know we're like mid meal on this themes part, but I wanted to jump in and say like, Harry, what is a serious man to you? You know, a serious man, I think is it's, well, we hear it in the movie because it's first referred to Sai. A couple of people call him a serious man. He was and a then serious man. Yeah, yeah. When he, exactly. And when he's having his funeral, you know, the rabbi says he was a serious man. Right, and right. what does that mean? You know, it, yeah. Like I kind of read it as, you know, we were talking about the sort of the Job analog and the question of, is Larry a good man? Is he a bad man? And it's just, I don't think he's either, right? The the serious man, is that a good thing? Are we supposed to be serious? Are we not? Like, how does that kind of weigh in? And how do you judge a serious man? Because if this is, if this whole movie is a question of, you know, how should, uh, like, how should Larry be judged, right? What kind of person was he? He definitely was someone who took things very seriously. Sure. Everyone around him was kind of just sort of accepting and laid back. He was just, he needed his answers. He was very rational. He was serious about things. You know, he couldn't Mm -hmm. accept anything in a lighthearted and a relaxed and just sort of the, you know, in the comforts of faith way. He needed his answers. So he's this serious man. And the question is, like, what does that make him? You know, what does he get because of that? What does he deserve? And I don't know. You know, all we know about him is he was serious. You know, he took things seriously. Was that good? Was that bad? Like, did he deserve any of this? I don't know. He was just, he was a serious guy. That, that that was kind of how I read it. Did you have a, did you have a different kind of read on the, on the title? I mean, it's interesting. We talked before about in the second rabbi meetup, he says, you know, they kind of play them against each other, Cy and Larry, you know, but I think about it, both got into an accident. Both are one acted as an adulterer, meaning he like cheated. He didn't consummate the marriage with Judith, but Cy basically was 
fooling around with someone else's wife, which is what Larry was going to do. So in a sense, Larry comes ahead because he didn't actually do that. And then Sai's doing all this like immoral stuff where he's kind of writing letters and throwing shade at Larry anonymously. So I would argue that Larry is more of a serious person and size just better at like hiding his skeletons. Um, yeah, I think, you know, thematically, I'm trying to jump back on this uh, introduction of a thematic uh, area and, and sort of talk about like, you know, the bar mitzvah thing, the coming of age. I love that. Um, I think it was, you know, relatable to anyone who's had a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah or whatever. Anybody who's prepared for a big thing and kind of, <laughs> you know, also someone who's like uh, able to like, handle it under under the influence kudos to them but you know i think jewishly i'm veering a little bit off track but i think you know the theme of like how to handle someone who's a bit different i think you know arthur's a bit different they allude to him maybe being gay or maybe being just like a little bit neurodiverse i don't know but uh yeah i don't know if that's necessarily a jewish thing but i thought this idea of like being othered and then trying to to find some way to like make him feel welcome was kind of a nice way like bringing him in. Um, but Harry, I'm full from this uh, themes category. I'm going to pass it back to you to see if you want any leftovers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I'll definitely weigh in a little bit there. I was thinking about this thematically. You know, what's going on in this movie? What are like its big questions? And it's obviously about this person who's struggling and he's trying to get these answers. And you know, and one note, you know, we we did mention the the parable of Job. And just anytime that there's an allusion that's very clearly, you know, Old Testament biblical, you know, from the Torah. It's it's kind of that that to me is is a huge thematic connection to Judaism. So sure. you know that aside, and th- and that's a very clear reading you know that a lot of people have had from this movie. So that's obviously there. But you know the two things that I felt like were were so Jewish in terms of its themes, and the ones that I really respond to are you know I don't know if I've mentioned this yet in this episode, but it, have I spoken about parables yet? Have I mentioned anything along those? I don't lines? think so. It doesn't sound familiar. Okay. now. so I'll, I'll introduce it now. I guess, but this concept of I'm joking. Telling you brought story, it up a bunch of times. I was going to say, hopefully our audience, uh, unless they started at the ending and just don't know, but I, I have mentioned that a few times. Yes. But um, that concept of parables and just using parables to tell a story, and sure. we, we mentioned that it's very midrashic, and I, I really think that obviously there's something very universal about that. You know, before I claim that parables were invented or just like predominantly used by you know Jewish texts, of course, like they you know they they exist in many different cultures and many different sure. histories. But you know, one of the ways that we really have engaged with like the Torah text, you know is through this concept of parable. And that's in specific stories that, you know, we, we learn out messaging from them, like in the Torah itself, but then even sort of, I think of it as a very Talmudic method because, you know, half of like a lot of like when you're reading Talmud, you know, sometimes it's a very explicit dry and cut, like statement of rule, like of rulings and explaining things. And that's, you know, the stuff that Larry would really like, but very often the rabbis have used that as a sort of device that, you know, they'll use a parable sometimes with an explanation afterwards, and sometimes just kind of leave you with the parable as you're supposed to learn the story. And that's, that's a text that that's a device used to help explain, you know, the, the Torah itself, you know, in the sort of midrashic sense. And that's also in the, you know, in the Talmud, that's this tool that's used to convey messages and find meaning. And the way that that not only is what the rabbis, you know, do in this movie and what, you know, Larry's friends do in this movie and how they recommend him. But even just 
how the movie itself is functioning and how it's conveying, it's teaching its audience, right? It's, it's tackling these questions of, you know, meaning why does good things happen to bad people? The movie itself on a very meta level is its own parable because obviously it's an invented story to tell this, Mm -hmm. but the devices the movie uses throughout, whether it be the dreams, whether it be the stories that people tell, it, there, you know, whatever. There's a lot of parables in this mm-hmm. movie. So just using that full? device. <laughs> yes. So using that device so clearly, I think, was just so Jewish. And then the other big thing in this movie, you know, and obviously that that's almost like the parables is like the frame. But, mm-hmm. you know, the movie itself is about this questioning of faith. And, you know, I've said this on other episodes, but I think that you know, that, that sort of uncertainty of faith is like, you know, one of the most, you know, religious struggles, Jewish struggles. And, right. you know, that question of how can, you know, believing in a God without actual, actually seeing proof, like, I mean, is it's fundamental, right? That, that is so much the Jewish experience. And, you know, as much as a guy like, uh, as much as a guy like Larry is going to be looking for answers and is going to be trying to, you know, find a mathematical proof, right? Cause that's how he thinks he thinks in the world of math, mm-hmm. you know, that's like a fundamental tenant to any faith, to any religion is that there can't be a proof that subsists on us kind of believing in spite of there not being proof. And, you know, I say us because I'm a person who I think is, you know, fascinated by that idea and really enjoys that and thinks that, you know, it creates a very deep connection. I think that's what this movie is capturing and it's kind of testing its audience with those same questions of, you know, that's what this character of Larry is struggling with. And that's what you can do with this movie. You can try to find meaning, you can make sense of it. But when you inevitably fail, because I think they've sent this movie in too many different directions for you to actually get a cohesive kind of reading that that satisfies everything, that where everything kind of makes sense and the morality is judged, you know, effectively. So when you inevitably fail, you know, how do you, how does that, how does that make you feel? You know, do you believe in it? Were you moved by it? Was there still, do you come away with the lesson of, well, at least it's important to help people and that kind of helps you feel good with it? Or does it, you know, shut you down and cause you to kind of take the bribe money and go in that different direction. And I just think the way that the movie is like dealing with that, I, that that's not just like in the movie, that is the movie. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, I'll, I've done all this setting up for, uh, you know, before we get into the dessert course, which I would say is when we uh, discuss if it's good or bad for the Jews, I'll just volunteer my ranking after all that sort of spilling after this, you know, huge main course I had. And, you know, I, I think this is another five stars. I think this is five out of five wow. Jewish stars. The the content, the themes, the cast and crew are all there. It, it'd be hard to like, I'm not sure what it's missing. It'd be hard to like nitpick right now and say, well, technically, you know, he goes on this journey about infidelity and that's not explicitly Jewish. Like, sure. You know, you can, you can pull those threads, but sure. th- this was such an obviously Jewish movie from the first frame to the last frame. So I, uh, I'm going to give it the five stars. We don't give that out very often on Jews on film, but this definitely deserves it. Uh, nice. Do you agree with me, Daniel? Do you think that was fair? Did I make a case for it? Do you believe it yourself? You certainly made a case for it. I, I want to just touch on one thing before I review it and give it my rating. I think the thing that you talked about of of just kind of having all these things just to continue our sort of food metaphor, which we like so much on this podcast, the idea that this is sort of a buffet of ideas and a lot there's a lot there. There's a lot there for you to choose from. And like, it's similar to the parable about the man who saw the Hebrew letters on the teeth. You can take away with it. You can take away from it what you want. And there's a lot out there. You know, they don't necessarily come down on what on the on these issues one way or another. You know, I think it's open to interpretation, but I do feel like it is a very Jewish film. I might have to join you there with the five star club. I think it's undeniable between the cast and crew, the themes the content. I I think it's all there. I really, um, you know, the movie did throw me through a loop, but I think the Jewishness is there. And I think that they intended to make something that was 
confusing, not super satisfying in a Hollywood ending kind of way. You know, yep. not seeing what that appointment was like or not seeing whether or not they got down to the bunker or not resolving the story with Mrs. Samsky and seeing if he's if his domestic life opened up and he was more liberated after having, uh, you know, seen her and, and hung out with her. So, yeah, overall, I thought this was a five star for sure. Well, what's the dessert? Now us, I'm curious. Oh, I was oh, going right. to say that brings us to our dessert. Was this good for the Jews? How do you feel about that? Oh, oh boy. Um, some of the Jews in this film came off really like, I think maybe one of the few Jews in this film that came off looking super well was, I think Rabbi Simon, arguably like the least uh, senior of the rabbis. You know, I think the middle and last rabbi were, you know, less satisfying for me as rabbinic sources. I think I want someone who's kind of like down to earth and like a man of the people, as opposed to this sort of frail aging person who hides behind doors. This is someone who walks out and meets you as opposed to having a secretary bring them in and things like that. Um, I thought he was good for the Jews. The rest of them, I don't know. I mean, they are Jewish in in very many ways, but I think there's not a lot of like redeemable Jewish characters in this film. So I would say that this film was not good for the Jews. Harry, how about yourself? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think they're, they're, it's in a very Coen Brothers way. All the characters are very ridiculous and, you know, laughable. Yeah. Like we didn't touch this so much, but... Other than Larry, who I think has, you know, a certain amount of depth for him, with him. And definitely he goes on sure. a journey. Yes. I don't think any of the other characters have anything similar. I think they're all kind of these caricatures that are placed to embody certain, like, just like a certain response to Larry. And they, they're kind of like set pieces designed to, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of trigger th certain things of him for him to kind of play Plot off. And supposed yes. to like, a little bit. And like... I don't think any character and, and, you know, by design, like not in, not in a flawed way of the film, it's just no character is given enough time and enough resources to, to have, you know, a more complex narrative other than, you know, he's like, whatever they, they just, they're just depicting different versions of, uh, of, an, you know, a sense of morality and a sense of engaging with the world than, than Larry is. So, you know, I don't know. I think if you like, look at the rabbis, I, I agree with you. I, I think if you're not coming at this from like a Jewish and faithful place, right, and you're watching this and you just kind of see these rabbis, I think you're supposed to feel a little bit frustrated like Larry. I think you're supposed to go in with Larry like, I just want answers. And, you know, you're you're supposed to think of these, you know, responses as, uh, don't worry about it. You know, not for us to know. God has the answers and we just need to be good people. You might get a little frustrated with that, which I think was part of the point. Totally. So I agree with you. I don't think that there's anything so great. You know, there's no one character that I'd say like, that was a great Jew. And that was like just a cool person. And, right. you know, Larry's a little bit of a neurotic mess and everyone else is kind of, you know, doing their own ridiculous things on the side. So it's definitely not good for the Jews. It's not awful for the Jews. I don't think you're, sure. I mean, I hope no one's watching this. I hope no one watches any movie and thinks poorly of the Jews, but not the best representation either. So probably like, I know we're not given a ranking for this, but like, I want to say it's not quite new. It's like neutral bad. That's what I'll call it. Just neutral so bad. I don't get okay. into numbers. I don't want to confuse our other rankings, but definitely you know, not, not the best luck for the Jews, but not the I worst either. It's fine. That's a Jewish answer. And that was our review of A Serious Man. Thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to follow us on all the social media platforms. We're on Instagram and TikTok. And please subscribe and like our podcasts on Spotify or iTunes or wherever else you're listening to this. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.